0: Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce you to this week's sponsor. Very glad to have these guys on board. Uh, I'd like to introduce you, freaks, to BlockFi. No one likes having to sell their crypto if they don't want to. It's the last thing anybody wants to do, especially if you're a hodler. Whether you're paying off credit cards or buying a house, BlockFi helps crypto investors use their Bitcoin, Ether, and Litecoin without selling. Backed by Mike Novogratz, BlockFi is lead, is the leading crypto-to-USD lender in the U.S., servicing over 45 states Interest rates start as low as 8%. Visit blockfi.com slash tails from the crypt. That's blockfi.com slash tails from the crypt to learn more about using your crypto without having to sell. And these guys actually have a very special uh, deal going on for Tales from the crypt listeners in particular. Uh, sign up for. BlockFi using the Tales from the Crypt uh, URL, blockfi.com slash tails from the Crypt. You get $25 of free crypto added to customer collateral for loans under 10K. Uh, and if you take out a loan over $10,000, you're going to get $50 of free crypto cr- collateral added. Uh, applying takes less than two minutes. You can click the site if you have any questions or are curious at all. Blockfi.com slash tails from the Crypt. Check it out. It only takes two minutes. Try to preserve your crypto. Try to hodl onto it as long as possible. Services like BlockFi are making this possible. Um, And warning to you freaks, very excited for this episode. Stick around till the very end. We have some special Bitcoin commercials for you. (laughs) Sales from the crib. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here on a Monday afternoon, sipping on vodka sodas with a very special guest. He's in town for the day, for a day and a half. Uh, had the pleasure of meeting him while in uh, Riga, Latvia, for, for the Baltic Honey Badger Conference earlier this fall. Uh, I'd like to introduce you, freaks, to the host of the Crypto Voices podcast, and maybe the best voice in all of crypto, in Bitcoin in particular. Uh, I want to introduce you, freaks, to Matty Mazinskis. How'd I do?
1: Uh, close. Good, good. <laughs> Thanks, Marty. <laughs> Mezinskis would be the Latvian pronunciation, but uh, growing up in Ohio, it was Mazinskis. Mazinskis. Confusing all the way around, I know. But uh, yeah, great to be here, man. It's great to meet you in Riga and stoked for uh, a lot of interesting New York Bitcoin festivities tonight. Yeah, it's uh
0: big night here in New York City for you freaks that don't know, it's a Soho forum debate between uh Dr. Lawrence White and Ken Rogoff. Uh just debating monetary policy. Larry's uh, obviously free banking. Yep. And uh, Ken Rogoff uh wants NERP policy, correct? Yep. So we'll see uh that's gonna be an interesting one. Yep,
1: yep. Larry uh, Larry also the uh you know, one of the consultants, uh paid consultants now of this initiative. initiative Q. Q very exciting development in cryptocurrency yeah we'll we'll get to that later it's not a cryptocurrency
0: we're gonna get to larry later because i just listened to your podcast fair enough uh, enough. and it's incredible Uh, a couple things first uh crypto voices if you freaks haven't heard of it uh go look it up now it's one of the best uh i would say intellectually dense uh podcasts from an economics perspective on cryptocurrency in particular out there it's one of my favorites um you and your co-host fernando uh ulrich ulrich yep uh, do an incredible job and have done some incredible episodes one we're going to talk about in particular which is the episode you did on base money which i found completely fascinating i was actually lost on a car ride i'd accidentally toggled uh, uh, a trip on my google maps without toll roads so i got lost on like a back road for like four hours and luckily crypto voices with your base money episode in particular uh, kept me sane throughout that's that. that's
1: perhaps the best time to listen to an episode on base money when you're lost in your car and yeah
0: um but before we get all of that uh as is uh per usual on this show how did you get into bitcoin i have no idea how you, how you found your way here
1: yeah yeah so i guess my story you know and i don't uh perhaps that's not known to many of our listeners but um i guess it's a bit a bit unique so i am i am american but my father is uh is latvian uh from eastern europe uh although he is basically first generation american as well i mean he he uh was born during world war ii his family came over uh after world war ii um and so he basically grew up in the u.s as well but i have just all of his side of the family is is from latvia so from this is always something i wanted to explore and just you know explore the family roots so from 2006 after i finished university college uh, moved to latvia and i've been there ever since um was initially in real estate i was uh analyst slash acquisitions manager for a small uh, boutique firm in Riga, which was a good experience for me, but that was also like the height of the boom years. Mm -hmm. That's what got me interested in economics when it all came sort of crumbling down, asking questions, you know, why does it happen, boom bust cycle, so on and so forth. And I heard about Bitcoin um, fairly early, I think, when a lot of the, you know, present sort of large figures, uh, you know, like, Trace Mayer, Roger Veer, Eric Voorhees—these guys heard about it all in like early 2011. That was about the same time that I heard about it. But um, unfortunately for me, at that time, it did not did not jump, you know, headfirst into it. it. Took some time. I was reading about it. I was still sort of intellectually intellectually curious about all this uh, boom bust cycle, economics, money. Um, And I don't know. I just didn't take a flyer on it. Uh, Normally, I would in (laughs) those types of things. I I do have an investing background, uh, just by career, and also just been investing since I was like twenty in stocks. So interested in all that stuff. But it took me time, which is a story I always tell people. Like you know, you just you don't get into Bitcoin until you're ready. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, for me, it took about that. It did take that that well. The first major boom wasn't the first boom, but the first major boom over a thousand in late 2013 to really pay attention, and in 2014, 2015, started really delving in more. Um, But that, I guess, is the general backstory.
0: Yeah. So were you just studying finance in college, or did you study econ intently?
1: Yeah, finance. um, Had an international business minor. (laughs) 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 Whatever that means. So I traveled, uh, yeah, it just means traveling, basically, on the uh, school's dime and, you know, partying in the evenings, going to a couple classes in the daytime. International business was great. As was just one of the best decisions I ever made.
0: Did you go to school in Ohio?
1: Yeah, I went to the University of Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, born and raised there. Basically, I uh, just took off after after college. Um, and, you know, lots lots uh, learned in Eastern Europe, for sure. We can talk, I mean, get into some of that. but
0: uh, Yeah, we'll wait till a little drunker to get into those. Stories. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, we have some nice Latvian vodka here.
0: Oh, we got to talk about the Latvian vodka. Uh, it, looks like a, it looks like a Russian bottle. So it's, yeah, a, it's a knockoff. Now,
1: yeah, so... Uh, might have been a little bit surprised there. Definitely, it is sourced in Russia, but it's bottled, uh, distilled in Riga. Uh, next time you're at the bar, check out the back of the Stolichnaya bottle. You'd be surprised to see that it's distilled in, uh, in Latvia. So it's very exciting. It's my
0: and it's delicious. It's yeah, going it's down cool. very well with this, uh, this carbonated water we got. Yeah,
1: the older you get, you know, you got to just stick with those vodka sodas. Yeah. Skinny drinks.
0: Yeah, very skinny drinks. I was actually just in a fat camp, and this was my go-to drink. So I've got a a very high vodka tolerance right now. Fantastic. I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, Yeah, so let's jump into it. What what I wanted to bring you on in particular is because I think you have uh, a very firm grip on economics in in general and the competing uh, economic theories and how they might apply to Bitcoin. Um, I guess my first question is: is obviously you didn't come from an economics background per se. Did uh, was it the the uh, economic downturn that sort of forced you to explore these things that Bitcoin pu- push you more towards these theories? Uh, um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So a couple things there. Um, so I'm not an economist. Fernando uh, brings the intellectual weight to the show. Uh, he is actually a trained Austrian economist.
0: Yeah, he's son of our de Soto. Oh, that's right. right.
1: Yeah, yeah, in uh, in Madrid and um you know but we both shared definitely an interest of like monetary policy specifically it's just was always interesting obviously you know as ron paul famously said you know money is one half of every transaction so it's it's probably something important we should understand so you know all the sound money austrian economics stuff have definitely gone down that rabbit hole uh i'd say from 2008 um but even before it was it was just curious to me i remember in, in latvia so like this is small. You know, they called them the Baltic Tigers at that time. These are small countries, you know, two, three, one million people, depending on which country you're in. Uh, very, very small economies. And I remember just going to, like, these American Chamber of Commerce events, like, after work, and people, like, drinking wine. People are, like, uh, talking about how much money they're going to make. And, and Latvian real estate is, like, priced the same on a yield basis as, like, real estate in in downtown cincinnati you know which is not like a you know crazy market it's a normal mid-tier market but still i mean if you understand some of the economics of what's going on there it just it didn't seem to make sense Mm -hmm. things were so mispriced and there was just not saying at all that i predicted the bubble it did not at all but it's i remember specifically at the time just thinking this is so so weird that everybody just thinks that by buying real estate specifically latvia had a just like the U.S. had a huge real estate dip, and it was like just by buying real estate, just by taking a loan, just by levering up, you can sort of, you know, beat normal productivity. It seemed confusing to me. It seemed curious. So that's that's sort of uh, was the genesis there. But yeah, definitely, obviously, as you go down the sound money rabbit hole and start to see that Bitcoin possibly has the best characteristics of any money ever invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to look back once you once you find that and understand it.
0: Yeah, and that's a uh, it's a huge theme on this podcast in particular is that people, like you said, Ron Paul said, money is one half of every transaction on Earth, and it's not until I found Bitcoin at least I really started questioning the essence of what is money, and that's something that I, I think a lot of people don't have never asked and don't even know how to approach to ask if they had yeah. if they had to begin the thought experiment by themselves without any outside help. Um, so that's one thing I think Bitcoin is doing in particular. Uh, that is, is very beneficial for society overall is that it's having people question these cornerstones of their lives. Um, money being one of the most important,
1: uh, yeah. And I I can jump in. I mean, to, to sort of, I don't think I've finished your initial question, but so on the show, like the reason, um, you know, and, and I started the show basically, uh, just wanted to do something creative. I've been buried in spreadsheets most of my professional life doing some consulting analytical things. And, uh, I just want to do something a bit more creative. So that was where the show came in. Knew that I wanted to give it that sort of monetary policy bent or just keep focusing on those questions. No pun intended. But <laughs> uh, the, um, like, uh, just sort of one general thing to say, sort of tangent to your prior question. I mean, it, it's not necessarily my intent to uh, uh to it's really just about trying to discover things that i'm curious about it's the reason i started the show Mm -hmm. uh it's great to have fernando on there who has this sort of austrian trained background and it's just been interesting asking sort of the same questions to a variety of different guests uh some economists some business people some bitcoiners whatever um I, i think it's if you and just a little bit to plug the show about what we're trying to do like you know I know people probably don't know, even what I've just said, rambling this early uh, minutes of this show, people don't know much about my own background, but that's sort of by design. Like I'm not trying to be some you know, Bitcoin figure. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I've, as many people have come to learn, it doesn't really even matter. It's whatever the nodes are doing is what matters in Bitcoin. And that's all very exciting stuff. But the point is just to ask questions, n- not trying to be any sort of uh, Bitcoin soothsayer or anything. Uh, I'm intellectually curious myself about these, uh, topics and I'm far from an expert. So like it's, it's, so my view is that I'm sort of an economic observer. I have an interest in, uh, money and credit. And I think that Bitcoin probably will be, uh, yeah, the best money ever invented. So that's sort of, again, I, back to your initial question, like why I started it, why we're doing it.
0: Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out: Should we jump into why you think Bitcoin's the best money ever, or should we start uh, with the what your calculation of the world monetary base, <laughs> and then jump into?
1: Yeah, maybe maybe base money. Yeah. I think uh, next. So, I think that's one thing that we're doing uh, on the show, and we've longtime listeners will know we've asked this to many economists, uh, many guests. Um, one thing. With Bitcoin, that is interesting, is everybody's trying to quantify it, to value it, to compare it with other real-world things like other money supplies. Mm-hmm. And you know, technically, economically, from a perspective of money, it's uh, it's it's hard to do if you don't have like a full grasp of that. And again, I'm not saying I have a full grasp. I'm not. I'm not an economist. You know, definitely a caveat I want to make there. But but I do have this sort of understanding, especially working with Fernando and and reading the things that I've read. um, A key difference between money that circulates in society today and bank money, which is like M1 deposits, Mm -hmm. PayPal, Venmo, uh, and and money meaning, you know, basically your dollar or the Euro in your wallet uh, calling that money. The key difference is that, um, uh, an iou basically that's the difference so money base money the monetary base this is um this is something that i feel like you should edit this out because i'm waiting uh, too long to describe it but no uh <laughs> this is what
0: tales from the crypt is all about these these uh candid moments yeah, you, yeah, yeah. it through the, your the
1: barstool moments definitely not how we do it as as <laughs> our listeners probably know i try to I try to get a quick hour of just, you know, if you put it on uh, 4x speed and you can just roll through it or in your car. Uh, but I, 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 let, I let's, let's say it like this. So most money that we think about today, we talk about it as being, you know, in the money supply. Uh, it is actually a claim. It's mm-hmm. a claim. It's an IOU. It started uh, from, you know, a bank. And um, would you say that
0: IOU represents future production all the time?
1: Uh, it represents a, yes, it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's one way of putting it. Basically it represents a claim on the investments or the asset uh, side of the bank's balance sheet. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not always backed one to one by cash, which is what a lot of people think that it is. And, uh, that's fine. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent reserver. We've talked about this as well. We could talk, maybe get into that a little bit here, but, basically to bring it back, um, it is confusing. Even myself trying to lay it out simply, it is confusing, but there is a money supply in economics in, uh, just the way that money has developed that is comparable to Bitcoin. So one thing that I was always sort of seeing and thought that it could be corrected a little bit, um, you know, on tweets or whatever, people writing articles like, okay, Bitcoin just passed, you know, the M one money supply of, Mm -hmm. you know, Venezuela or something. Uh, as as uh, as an economic sort of based basic definition, uh, it's not comparable to uh, a checking account because those are basically uh, that's a, that's a debtor and creditor relationship with the bank when you have mm-hmm. a checking account. We can get into what that means, but with uh, the monetary base, that is basically the most irreducible form of money. It's money that, um, you know, Fernando likes to say it's the ultimate asset of settlement. This is, uh, it's, it's been called uh, reserve money by Asian banks. It's, it's called basic money or the monetary base, usually by Western banks. Um, it is settlement media by banks and governments. Mm-hmm. So that's what it means today. And that's, that's called the monetary base. And as a, as a comparison, uh, we've, we've compiled this on Crypto Voices. We have an episode that you're referring to uh, where we sort of explain this, I think, better than I'm explaining now. But the total uh, base money in the world is about twenty trillion dollars, comparable. So if you look at, uh, you know, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the yuan, uh, the Brazilian real, the Indian rupee, those are the big ones, and then it falls off pretty quickly. The the um, British pound, of course, as well. Um, but the big four are the dollar, the euro, the yen, and the yuan, and uh, the twenty trillion dollar figure that I mentioned are just under that count. Ca- I've actually listed it. I've looked at like IMF, uh, uh, definitions of what's a pegged currency. What's not that, that basically is going to encompass about 93% of the world's GDP. So we're, we're not to a hundred yet, but it's, it's, it's a diminishing return thing. It's not going to go too much higher yeah. than 20 trillion. So that's actually the number that is base money in the world that banks use to settle transactions. And what the monetary base is comprised of is again, physical cash, physical notes that you know, that uh, you hold in your wallet and then something called bank reserves. I don't think we need to fully describe that yet, but again, it's it's basically what how banks settle. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. banks would settle by net differences net differences in their bank reserves. So those two things put together are the monetary base. And that is the money supply that at the end of the day should be compared with Bitcoin's supply of 21 million, which as we talk about in the exhibit, Bitcoin, you know, possible, I think likely future base money of the world uh, we yeah. have Fiat money, which today is that 20 trillion. And then we have past based money, which has been silver, but you know, as safe Adin writes, and a lot of people recognize it has been gold mostly. Nice. So that, and that, that number of all the gold in the world, minus, you know, maybe 10, 15% of industrial, uh, sort of, uh, recycling and industrial use somewhere around 7 trillion, okay. So 7 trillion for gold, uh, 20 trillion, 20 trillion for, fiat, for Fiat and what's the latest, what are we under? Eighty now, let's see we're under I don't know where we're at seventy though. maybe, yeah, uh, for Bitcoin, we're
0: around like four thousand right now, um yeah, but billion uh four thousand bitcoin times how out like seventeen point five or dispersed on the market right now
1: exactly and uh, and not all is yeah circulating,
0: um no, but this, so free free size I, I think this is an important distinction you guys are making because. I, I would agree this is what we should compare Bitcoin to and, and that's a function of me believing in uh, I believe it was Hal Finney was the first to describe Bitcoin as an international settlement layer for future central banks or future, uh, future free banking society
1: yeah yeah he did indeed and um, it, it's, it's, it's confusing as well because there are these terms that get thrown around that I think are, um, are that throw people off you know like uh if you may remember eric Voskul's presentation in riga he talked mm-hmm. about how using the word reserve currency was misleading
0: one of the most fascinating people i met at that conference by the way yeah he's a very interesting fellow. and uh, check out check out the two-part episode with uh, with crypto voices
1: thanks buddy thanks um so so very interesting fella i think he has a very good perspective on economics but even his claim about saying that Bitcoin won't be world's reserve currency in the future. I agree with that and we can get into why I agree with that, but it's even more, uh, confusing because we don't have a reserve currency today. (laughs) Now everybody says the dollar is the world's reserve currency. What they mean is that the dollar is the world's settlement currency. You know, gold is priced in dollars, oil is priced in dollars, so on and so forth. But banks, banks, um, they're not reserving dollars. They're reserving government bonds. Mm-hmm. Now those bonds are priced in dollars and euros and yen, and China specifically is an interesting case. Um, but central banks, they don't hold like a, a huge stash of dollars. They hold what's backing their dollar is a government bond. And that note, which to we'll talk about in this this base money presentation, like if you took a dollar bill out of your wallet, you went to the Fed, say, Hey, I'd like to redeem this. Mm-hmm. like to re- redeem this for your reserves. They would give you four quarters or they would just give you a new note. <laughs> right. It's an irredeemable currency. So in fact, in point of fact the the reserve currency of the world idea was completely abandoned in 1971, went mm-hmm. off the gold standard. That was the end of any convertibility. So for about 50 years, we've been in a world of zero convertibility money. There's no, it's just its own thing right now. Like we talked to Bob Murphy a couple weeks ago. He said the same, uh, Dollars are are used as money. People demand them as money. People uh, hold them as money, and that's that's fine. Uh, but it would be actually incorrect to say that we have a reserve standard today. Uh, so I'd actually even disagree with Eric on that point. I know where he's going with that topic. He's he's referring it back to to gold, but but we we haven't had a convertibility standard in 50 years anyway. The dollar, the euro, the yen, they're completely inconvertible. And if, if a central bank can't meet your your demand to redeem, like one note for note, like just say they don't have any on hand, mm-hmm. they have the license to print more. And the monopoly, so this is what you finally have to get to with fiat currency, is the main crux of the of the issue, if there is one, with fiat money is that there are these big institutions that have license to print you know, ad nauseum without any restrictions. So rather than, and this is where we, I like the work of, of Larry White and George Selgin, rather than having a free banking system where banks are competing, redeeming on each other, keeping each other in check, which we've had in different periods of history, which I think are fascinating. We can mm-hmm. talk about that too. Um, now we have a system which is basically a few main governments around the world have monopolized money, uh, it's irredeemable, and they have a license to print as much as they want. Now, I'm not saying they do that carte blanche all the time. They don't understand risks. I mean, we've had a dollar system for 50 years. It's been working. I mean, could you imagine being like a gold bug in like 1979? You know, when gold was going up to, from $35 an ounce to $800 an ounce. Right. You probably would have thought, you know, this is it. We're going back to gold. Mm-hmm. The market's shown it can work. But no, the central banker, uh, Paul Volcker, actually pricked that bubble, took interest rates to 20%, and he, he, he cut off that, that massive central bank inflation that happened after the end of the gold standard. So you never know. Uh, the monopoly power is extremely strong, but it is the monopoly power at the end of the day that is sort of the crux of the issue, is that there are these institutions, central banks, as Adam Smith said, a monopoly, it's not a big firm. It's not like from the board game. It's not a company that is like so good that it has 90% of the market share, can come in, undercut all your mom-and-pop shops, and then later jack up prices. That's not a monopoly. Those things can work at certain times and places for certain periods, mm-hmm. but they always have the threat of free competition coming in and undercutting them. A monopoly, at the end of the day, is a, a firm, a private firm, that has a special privilege from the government. And that's the key, is they have a special privilege, they have a license. So that's that's what
0: we're up against. With this <sighs> point. That was a very incredible, long-winded uh, explanation of what the Fed is. And So, I guess, first question, do you think that the last 50 years will be looked at as an aberration uh, on the long scale of history? You said, I mean, you alluded to the fact that uh, this is going to last a lot longer than we expect, um, but I, I would completely agree with that. But I do believe at some point there will be this, this this will hit ahead where the the experiment sort of unwinds uh and and we were like how the hell do we even get to this point where we thought this was okay um so that's like another theme of this podcast is that uh we were born at a point where we might be in a, a collective uh, delusion we might be a part of a collective delusion when it comes to money mm-hmm. and what it is and how it operates and we may have to rewire seven billion brains uh, yeah. to, to recognize this problem and then recognize what the solution is. Um,
1: yeah, I completely agree with the way you asked that question and sort of the premise of your question. Um, a, key free, a key phrase that you said that has been said a lot by Austrians and free market you know, capitalists and voluntarists is at some point, Mm-hmm. You know, we we always think, you know, we have all these negatives in the negative column. You stack it up and we have just a few positives. It must be clear that at some point, right. the house of cards is going to come down. It's going to end. We're going to yeah, get back on a more sound and stable standard. Uh, that that definitely can go longer than you think. So I, I try to be humble about that. And I, I don't think you'll ever hear me uh, making that case with Bitcoin because I... Honestly, don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it like one of the things that speculated a lot is this idea of like a Fed coin or a central bank coin that could compete. Um, I don't think that will uh, materialize that way because I think the government can't usually shows pretty accurately that they can't run websites. You know, they can't run health healthcare <laughs> websites. So right. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see a government designing a nice uh, virtual currency, as they call them. They always call them virtual currencies. A nice virtual currency that's better than Bitcoin. Um, but what I do see, uh, and, I, and I don't know how much of a prediction this is, but I do see stablecoins becoming monopolized by the government, and perhaps those are the only, quote, virtual currencies that could be you know legal is that uh, it's not it's not a prediction i I don't have anything to really base that off of but it's definitely a trend that governments typically do they see something that kind of works and they try to monopolize it they Mm -hmm. see something that works and they try to use force to you know selgin and white make this point all the time with money which i really like is that any monopolization of the money supply by a government is precisely born in the need for a to, to to take taxes, basically, to it's a fiscal need. Mm-hmm. They have their own budgets. They have their own, you know, sort of lords and 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 things that they need to take care of their 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 castles and their lands and so on and so forth. And I'm not trying to be too cynical there. I, it's it's just how it works is that they try to monopolize for their own fiscal needs. Uh, so what I do think with stable coins, which are um, an opportunity for them, is obviously this is something new somewhat programmatic you know programmable money like the gemini dollar or Mm -hmm. tether um these things are making news headlines you know i heard i can't remember if it was a private or a public source in asia was saying they were worried that uh they needed to get ahead because all these this usdt all these 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 uh abstractions of the dollar were taking place and they didn't have anything coming for the yuan or the yen so like asians were worried about this Uh, stable coins are definitely a phenomenon that people are talking about a lot. And though I believe that we don't need one at all. Once Bitcoin takes hold, like Bitcoin would be the Mm -hmm. ultimate stable coin, uh, and free coin and you know, so on and so forth. Um, that is an opportunity. Like that is sort of the, the nose in the, in the tent, so to speak that the, uh, the government could seize on to say, okay. There's a few issuers of these stable coins they're doing it well they're backing it the way we want we want to do it. These are the ones that if they don't go outright, outright monopoly saying those are the only ones that can issue it they're they will at least favor those strongly that that to me seems like a trend they would do if the government does get involved because I don't think they're going to design it i mean no one you know no no, no good developer is going to work <coughs> for the government to help them design it, but they could definitely monopolize a few that have and and they've they've done this in the past like this is what. The Federal Reserve Act was, this is what most central banking acts are. They're monopolizing big private players um, and using their sort of, you know, standing in the market for their own benefit. That's that's just what they do.
0: Yeah, they can create to entry via accreditation or basically yeah. regulations and stuff like that, obviously. But uh, then, yeah, like what we're seeing, actually, I've talked about this with Matt O'Dell. Uh what we're seeing is obviously tether is uh the most popular uh and i would argue successful uh stable coin up to this point it's always in the news and uh tether works because it 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 works the way it's supposed to do it's like it's allowing people to skirt u s regulations and get a peg dollar uh on a peg digital dollar online to trade bitcoin um I would argue it's the most successful stable coin you see but what we're seeing now is like gemini coinbase have uh, have gotten the okay from the government to create these stable coins and they're sort of posturing as, hey, we went through all these hoops to, to make sure we check the boxes off in the regulations and it seems like they're going after Tether uh, and a bit of a witch hunt to say, hey, we had to do this, you should have to comply too and maybe that is the, the Trojan horse for the government to step in and try to, to input their monopoly power via regulations and stuff like that. Uh, I would argue we're already seeing that uh, happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, like, the whole thing of stable coins, I think stablecoins are a funny meme right now, and I think they're... I think I think Reed is going to kill stablecoins, because stablecoins are only stable until they aren't, and the proliferation of more stablecoins makes every other stablecoin to come before it a little less stable, because you have competition for something that's supposed to hold a peg, which has proven in the traditional economy to never really work too well.
1: Yeah, I mean, unless the government just comes down with an iron fist and says like these are the only ones that will be allowed and these are the only you know and we're going to do it this way we're going to issue our own dollars our own way you know through our traditional you know uh, fomc meetings you know you're going to get some some uh some bulletins and some notices about how we do this but if it's going to come to virtual currency and things you can pay taxes in and things you can do this and that you can only use like you know the gemini dollar or these things yeah i mean i trojan horse you know that i, I think that's the The best chance for them if i had to look at how they would compete with bitcoin how it will play out i I genuinely do not know and I, i don't even know if we're speaking the correct like trend there but it definitely thinks like you said i mean it's a meme everybody's talking about stable coins everybody thinks stable coins are like the next big thing or whatever but it's just it's just taking you know one abstraction which is the dollar Mm -hmm. the euro
0: abstracting it further yeah, and
1: abstracting it further and acting like it's got some bells and whistles there's nothing there well that's that's novel or new or good or sound like bitcoin is
0: well exactly and to your point from earlier like the government does not have a monopoly anymore bitcoin does freely compete and i guess the the assumption i don't want to say you're making any assumptions but in the thought experiment we just played out there the assumption is that one government or a coalition of governments would be able to form fit this regulation across the world, which may not happen. I don't think that yeah, I think that a will hard, happen. It's a hard. Uh, so that's that's the beauty of Bitcoin. Like exactly. you try to cut off the head somewhere, somebody else takes that as an opportunity. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and so that's where I think. I mean, I wrote about it today. I wrote about uh, I wrote about the uh, the yellow vest. Uh, somebody in the yellow vest protests at the buy Bitcoin and, and again, I saw the. Uh, the headline yeah. yeah bitcoin presents an optionality that hasn't existed since 1971 like you were saying and even in 1971 that optionality was not as good as the optionality we have now because government sees gold and they held it in a centralized location so they had more control over that supply over the supply of that sound money than they will ever have over bitcoin at this point
1: yeah and to talk about gold a little bit i mean i i love gold like i think a lot of bitcoiners do there's some bitcoiners that don't at all i think about some bitcoiners that are like just don't.
0: Well, I think just because of what I just said, like the fact that it's been centralized to an extent with with the hold or the way it's uh, housed by governments and the way it's been seized and it's basically hoarded by governments at this point, I believe. Exactly, use- I would ag- cases. I would agree,
1: and I, I think if you're talking about money for the digital age, which we're moving into the digital age, we're already in the digital age. But if you're talking about the future of a of a monetary base for society, it only seems rational that you would want something that's uh much more secure much more transportable much more immutable uh than gold and we've like you said it has been centralized in fact i think it was actually nick zabo that wrote this i think but um it could have been the the big transport problem or basically with gold you know security of transporting large amounts uh that was really the 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 end of the gold standard in 1914 mm-hmm. in World War One is it was, you know, German U-boats taking down British boats that were transporting gold to the Fed because they were yeah. losing it. So like, gold just doesn't work in a, certainly in a system that in has a, developed an now. adversarial system. I would yeah, say in an adversarial system in a uh, in a in a large central government system, which has for better or for worse happened over the course of the 20th century, gold has shown to to have failed there. And again, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with holding it as an investment or as a, as a hedge or as an escape hatch in similar ways that Bitcoin does. But it has shown to, uh, to have a tendency to be centralized. And that is unfortunate for gold, but I think just shines a light on what Bitcoin can do.
0: Yeah. And it's... Um, that's, I mean, that's been the biggest knock on bitcoiners to this they're not the biggest knock but one of the biggest knocks is uh, you guys are just neo gold bugs which perturbs me a bit um perturbs me a lot actually because I, I wouldn't consider myself a gold bug at all and i would argue that the advantages that you just laid out of bitcoin over gold not being centralized and being a true like i could walk around naked with 12 words in my head and transfer millions of dollars uh, i believe that is a, a 10x improvement on gold so i don't want to consider myself a neo gold bug I would consider myself a sound money maximalist to a degree yeah um
1: i think uh my view on on that idea is that it is it is true that bitcoin uh this goes back to the digital gold idea of bitcoin and mm -hmm. there are critics obviously against bitcoiners um who say digital gold or store of value first before you get to medium of exchange there are more similar similarities with Bitcoin to gold than there are Bitcoin to fiat in that in that comparison, mm-hmm. because like the old monetary base of you know the old, whether it was the gold standard or even before, um, any any system you know gold really the classical gold standard was like late eighteen it was very short it was like late eighteen hundreds to World War One, mm-hmm. and, and and that was it. But gold as money, as as a basic money, as as the monetary base, as sort of the settlement media, that had been going on for you know millennia. Um, but the the thing with gold, the thing with gold is is that it has this sort of barbell problem. It has like uh, the sweet spot is in the middle, but on the one side you have this like small change problem, and on the other side you have this big transport problem, like security. And it just was never easily solved with gold i mean you had like in in britain you would have like there was a tri-metal system they had copper in in the us they had a bi-metal system actually the us was silver before they were gold i think still in the code i think the, I didn't know that. a dollar bill is defined as 371 grains of silver really yeah which is about 80 percent of an ounce okay. is, is a, that that is the definition of a dollar fernando is actually going to do it uh, at lebitcon i'm going to head down there after new york here he's going to give a speech on on what is a dollar so all this stuff is nebulous but the um the 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 point that the thing that is confusing and i think people just quickly attack bitcoin is that they think yeah it's just going to be settlement it's just going to be like sort of this store of value it can't uh it can't scale so on and so forth but that's that's if, if you've studied mon- money long enough, and I wish I had a simplified way to say this, but it's always about trade-offs with money. Like there's no there is no silver bullet, so to speak. Right. It's always about maybe using a different metal to spend a little bit less, maybe using a different metal to spend a little bit more, or maybe even using paper in day to day, which I think is totally fine by the way, using paper. I mean like that's that's just how well, it's solved some problems with gold over time like some natural problems that they had um and and with with bitcoin i actually think that that's uh that's the greatest lesson and it's a lesson that bitcoin core whether they know it or not is shown to be following is that there are trade-offs mm-hmm. like there are trade-offs in security versus economics like like my take and again it doesn't matter for me like if if roger wanted to claim that the whole problem with the uh, scaling debate was censorship. We actually interviewed Roger about, uh, about the time that Bitcoin uh, passed 10,000 about a year ago. Um, like during the interview, Bitcoin was passing 10,000 for the first time.
0: And this was at post fork, right? Yeah. This, this was, was
1: uh, post Bitcoin cash fork, Bitcoin cash pre SegWit two X failure, I believe. Okay. But I believe, but it, it was, it was the first time that Bitcoin passed 10,000, like during the interview. And I think it was CoinMarketCaptain. It might have not been GDEX. In any event, uh, it was interesting to talk to him about that. And I posed, uh, like everybody's talked about this like a thousand times. People might not expect or want to hear me go into this again. But I posed the question like, like, you know, I'm very sympathetic to your views, Roger, about Bitcoin not being able to scale on-chain economically for some reasons. Um, but isn't it enough for you that the Bitcoin core nodes have, have signaled and have basically just decided as a network that security is more important. And, you know, it was, you know, the, I, you know, the road the, script he it, throws out. It was the road script. Yeah. I mean the, the censorship and the other deflections, mm-hmm. I guess, but, but to me, that's like the crux of the debate. That was the crux of the scaling debate. That's the crux of the block size limit debate. And it's still going to go on. We're going to see this happen more and more, but, but, it's economics versus security. I mean, it's a trade-off. And it's clear that the Bitcoin core roadmap is in favor of security over economics. And I think it's important to recognize that there's certainly good economics there, but the security is, is, uh, is paramount. And that's fine because actually, you know what? If you look back at some gold monetary history, that's the same way it developed as well. So there's good... We're in good company there, but on the other side, obviously, the, the, the main secure security risk that we're going against, or the nodes, I should say, are going against is obviously the cost of running and validating and, and centralization risk. So yeah, it's, it's the same trade-offs that there's always been, and I think Bitcoin Core has shown, really from the early days, uh, tremendous foresight. Nick Carter said this as well when we interviewed him uh, a couple weeks ago, like tremendous foresight to... Uh, recognize the the importance of that security and that trade off. It, it there absolutely is a trade off. Like I don't think anybody should deny that there's a trade off. No trade off. No,
0: I don't think, and I don't think. I mean, I don't think anybody worth their salt would deny it. Uh, and I think the Bitcoin core team, in particular, uh, just has this mindset because because um, they've got so many like lifelong cypherpunks and distributed system engineers who actually know how to build these systems and understand the trade-offs uh and that's the biggest knock on Ethereum. like if we're going to compare chains like ethereum obviously did not understand these trade-offs from the beginning and uh there's a lot of arguments made with bitcoin in particular that maybe we should actually lower the block size uh run experiments we bought one of the casa nodes here and been running experiments setting it up and for users who are using it, uh, what we found in like the Casa group users Hasu in particular, he met in uh, Riga as well, yeah. is uh, the bandwidth problem that you have when like s- setting a node. And again, security is imperative if we want to rip away the government's monopoly on money creation. We can't make it so uh, they can find a few few amount of nodes and shut them down. So being able to run a node for an individual user is imperative, and we're finding that you need to. We might even need to to lower the block size to make it so that is possible in the long run. Um, so I I just think that it, like you said the trade offs have been have been weighed pretty heavily. I think Bitcoin Core is doing a great job. We're gonna let like you let you take a little pee break here, and then uh, we'll we'll talk about Lightning because I think I think Lightning is a great. Uh, it's just
1: filling up the vodka break. It's not a pee break. Yet. Oh, filling out the vodka. All right, I'm gonna take a <laughs> pee break then. All right, and we'll uh, we'll get right back to it. So let me know when we're back. Or are we just recording? Can I just go?
0: Yeah, we're recording.
1: So, back now from this little break. Um, fun fact about Stoli, Marty, uh, there's actually a brand dispute, a former Soviet Union brand dispute between Stoli, uh, the the brand. So this, you were surprised that is actually distilled and bottled in Latvia, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a Latvian company that that uh, distills it. it there's a, I think it's a Luxembourg company that owns the, all the the holdings, but. Um, there's a, uh, since the Soviet Union ended, it was, it was bottled and distilled there in Latvia, which was part of the Soviet Union, but basically Latvians just took, took control of it. And the Russians, uh, or some contingency of Russians, did not want that to happen. So there's a competing Stolichnaya in Kaliningrad. And uh, so if you're in Russia, and I think, like some parts of Europe, like uh, maybe Belgium and Holland, if you, if you see Stoli there, it's going to be the, the Kaliningrad Stoli. <laughs> really? So they're competing Stoli brands. You would never know. But yeah, it's uh, it, it all looks Russian, but uh, the Stoli that you will usually see in the Western world is is Latvian Stoli.
0: Well, it's delicious Stoli. It's very so. exciting. It's, uh, Stoli and Tito's are my two favorite uh, two favorite vodkas of choice. And this is actually only the second time we've drank vodka on this podcast. The first time was a Bitcoin Sign Guy. And it is uh, one of the highest... Highly, one of the most highly touted episodes we've had. So now for, I feel honored. Well, I hope, uh, I think I'm, not,
1: I'm actually positive I won't compete there, but, uh, <laughs> I, I don't
0: know. I don't know, Matthew. I don't know, Maddie. I think we're going to get there. Uh, vodka may be the elixir that, uh, that brings out the magic. Good, good, good. So we were talking about, what were we talking about? Yeah, gold. We were comparing gold and Bitcoin, uh, and Important Bitcoin.
1: comparisons. Important to talk about, flesh out, but Very interesting. I, I
0: think, I think we would both agree that Bitcoin has, uh, some the comparative edge. advantage, Yeah, the yep. edge uh, in many places. And uh, like you were just describing, you were talking with Nick Carter earlier and what he's big on is the narratives and how the narratives have evolved throughout time and Bitcoin in particular. Uh, a lot of the big blockers who forked out the Bitcoin Cash have been touting that Bitcoin is the, the easiest way to quickly send money at a cheap fee uh, for the masses. We, we quickly found as the network became more popular, that, that may not be the case, and to make that possible, you would have to increase, increasingly raise the block size, which, may make, which is a trade-off you have to make from a security perspective, making the chain less secure. Um, I've been a big believer that uh, this space is filled with a bunch of impatient assholes that don't know how to wait uh, for the infrastructure to get built out, and it seems as though we may have that infrastructure being built out in earnest with the Lightning Network, yep. and uh, going back to the narratives part, uh, th- so with narratives in particular, people have been confused over what is the, I mean, or actually I shouldn't say people have been confused. The dominant narrative has shifted over time, but I believe the best narrative has existed since the early beginnings, which is Hal Finney's narrative, which we touched on earlier. And it seems like lightning network is enabling a sort of free banking system where Bitcoin at the protocol level can be a reserve settlement layer. And then lightning can be your medium of exchange layer where, where a lot of the, the economic activity is happening.
1: Yeah. So a couple things there. And I think I'll probably go on like 10 tangents. So let's see if we can get through them. But um, firstly, regarding uh, Lightning and uh, what it's it's doing uh, compared to maybe another prior system or whatnot. It's very similar, in my opinion, to um, how banks have generally evolved. And that system, believe it or not, uh, it's, it's better than what I'm about to describe. But that system actually has always been a system of IOUs and, and claims. Mm-hmm. And again, it's about trade-offs. It's about uh, an efficient form of making payments. But the thing is with banks, like banks were never there. Banks were never created to tell us what money is. Banks were there to allocate capital efficiently. They were there to move capital from its least efficient point to its most efficient point and in the meantime, facilitate payments. like that's that's what banks were for. So mm-hmm. banks, all banks do is move IOUs around. That's all they do. They don't tell us what money is. they don't It's not banks' decision. It's not our, even even with the government monopoly of the banking system, which is largely taken hold today. and and as evidenced by the fact that we have irredeemable paper, basically, irredeemable, Government money, which is just its own thing, so as we talked about that twenty trillion um, you know eighty percent of that is the four largest economic blocks in the world that's just it's it's just how the system has evolved uh, but banks specifically what they do day to day they don't they don't tell us what money is they're just pushing iOUs around so when we look at something like uh, lightning. I think it is amazing. It's definitely trustless in many ways, and it's better than any sort of bank IOU that has, uh, been created in the past. Mm-hmm. It still is something slightly, maybe akin to an IOU. It's not a,
0: we're about to trigger, pe- trigger people.
1: Yep. 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 Um, actually I will quote Peter Todd said this, um, I think which, which is a great, uh, a great quote, he was responding to someone, I I can't remember, who who basically said in no way is a Lightning uh, channel, a Lightning payment, Bitcoin on Lightning and IOU. And he responded, he said, no, it's not, Uh, though, meaning, yes it is, he he responded and said, uh, though, though uh, Bitcoin on Lightning, you know, can be sent trustlessly across channels, there is the possibility that the sender could try to take it back and in some situations may succeed. He said something like that. Mm-hmm. But he said, don't don't oversell the security. And then he said, you know, Lightning is basically some sort of a middle ground where it's not technically an IOU, but it's not technically, obviously, on-chain Bitcoin. And to me, that's just an obvious statement. It's a great statement. Like to say that Lightning is like a middle ground for payments is, or, or for IOUs, I guess I should say. Lightning is a middle ground of what, traditionally has been an IOU and not is a great is a great improvement on yeah, what we've had an upgrade. It's an upgrade. Yeah. And, and and again, so a lot of the problems that we've had with the gold standard and throughout history is we have had some speculative attacks by rival governments, rival banks, and that causes this quote unquote instability with the with the standard money. But with Lightning, obviously, it's not like that because it's locked on chain. There's all sorts of I mean, all sorts of anonymity, you know, things in place, it's onion routed. And there's no like, it's not, it's not gonna be that tomorrow it's like ready, like it's just, this is the beautiful thing about technology as well, it compounds upon itself, it gets better and better. So I, I think that it will prove to be a supreme form of a, of a, of a layered payment system, but it is a layer, like it's, it's, it's not quite M1, so I guess maybe what I should do uh, and just stop me if you want me to if you want to talk about different keep different going topic but uh so so describing how it would work in uh in let's let's say like a gold standard system um, a it, it it never first of all this is another thing where to to defend the free bankers and depend, defend like the free market finding the right solution it was never like um The the market will always find a solution. So it was never like gold merchants were collecting gold from gullible people. They put it in their vaults. And then after a while, uh, people didn't want the gold. They just wanted the paper and they started to trade the paper. And the, the gold merchants realized, hey, we're greedy gold merchants. We can start to lend out this gold and no one will be the wiser. It never happened that way. In fact, the paper was demanded it was demanded. This is what Selgin and White write about, which I really appreciate, and I think it highlights this system. Mm-hmm. the system. The layered system on top of gold was more efficient than, you know, again, this small change, sort of big transport problem. The sweet spot actually turned out to be paper more often than not. Adam Smith wrote about this. And yes, it is true that not all of, there was actually never a 100% reserved gold system ever. Uh, the, the only times that it was really tried was actually by uh, governments monopolizing it, trying to do it, like as is quote-unquote better, and they all sp- failed spe- spectacularly. They, they all added, ended up lending money themselves and not keeping appropriate reserves and couldn't keep up with the market. But as Selgin and, and White and others have written, there have been times in history would have, which have shown the brilliance of the free market using this sort of a layered system, uh, and it's been... And it, it worked fine because it's cheaper to go outside of the, the base settlement media, which was gold. And it was cheaper to start using claims and notes and things that were you know you, easier settled between banks than the actual coin, the bullion, the specie, than the actual settlement media, which was gold. So, so it is with Bitcoin, but it's in a very, very unique, absolutely better way. The settlement media in Bitcoin is still on-chain Bitcoin. It's when, when you hold on-chain Bitcoin, no one else holds it. It's absolutely your asset. It's no one else's liability. It's 100% like that. That's basic money. It's the ultimate asset of settlement. When you hold on chain, Bitcoin It's very unique. Mm -hmm. It's just like holding a dollar in your wallet, or it's just like holding a gold coin, you know, in your hand. But obviously, obviously we need trade offs to make payments. Like we can't, we can't, everybody knows that we can't do every payment in the world on the blockchain. That's obvious. Right, we can't we can't scale every single payment.
0: Not to some people.
1: Yeah, well, um, if you read the history of money and banking, it should be well, obvious. This is my point. If you what, read the history of money and banking, that's what I was gonna say. Let's, it should be obvious right. to you. So
0: for those for those freaks out there who are uh, not so inclined to read, let's talk about some examples. You're talking uh, about Larry and, and Selgin pointing out some examples in history where it has worked. So let's, let's talk right, about yeah. some of these so, examples. So Canada
1: is a good one. Uh, in Canada. Um, they had no central bank. They had competing private banks. When are we talking? Uh, Late 1800s. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Late 1800s to 1930. Canada didn't have a central bank. And if you look at the notes, which are basically fiduciary media, this is notes that the banks issue that are traded as money. But again, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, that wasn't base money. It It was an IOU. It was a claim. The banks were, you know, they were issuing out to participants in the Canadian marketplace. Um, the need to hold currency was always highest at the harvest time, because when you you know in the spring, summer, mm-hmm. fall, that's when you needed that's when you needed more currency. You needed to pay workers more. So actually, the the need of currency changed
0: based on the season seasonality.
1: Mm-hmm. And you can look at a, uh, a graph. Seljan has showed this many times. You can look at a graph of Canadian banknotes issued, you know, on a on a, on a on a macro level, and it's like this beautiful sawtooth pattern where it's higher in the summer and then it's lower in the winter. And he and he's like, "Do you think this is some like lovely central bank, you know, uh, uh, nice top down?" Uh, I can't Decree. even. I can't even flatter the the, the people that that. Focus on planned economies, but you know, (laughs) trying, trying to, trying to make it seem like, oh, you must think this was a beautifully planned top-down thing. No, Canada didn't even have a central bank, and they beautifully, uh, in this like sawtooth pattern, which was always moving up, they were increasing the currency when it was needed, decreasing it when it was not, and that was done through a system of claims with competing banks. No one ran off with the gold that was deposited there. No one ran off. Like people, people didn't suffer from hyperinflation. The banks were able to branch, which was another problem with the U S system at the time, even though the U S didn't have a central bank, U S central banks couldn't branch was a huge problem. Okay. So notes would circulate at massive discounts. Like you couldn't have a note from, from Washington go to like Ohio because it wouldn't be accepted at like a massive discount. Yeah. So, that, and that was there were peculiarities of the U.S. regulation system that were bad, even though the U.S. didn't have a central bank at the time. But he shows that with the least regulation possible, the purest sort of free market system possible, and nothing is like... There's no equilibrium in markets. They're always tending toward one way or another. There's always, always some a, monopoly force. It's always
0: information right. asymmetry. But,
1: but you were able to see with a situation like Canada, and it happened in Scotland, it happened in Sweden, similar examples, that... Currency was able to be allocated where it was needed, where it was demanded, when it was needed, and when it was not, it, it was not. And and this happened in the form of paper notes. And so it worked. It worked well. It was cheap. It was efficient. And Canada had a worse depression, in fact, for other reasons, global reasons.
0: Yeah, I know. was going to say, did World War I end this? Right.
1: Well in, in the, well, in the 20s as well, there was, there was a lot of contagion and like th- there was depressions everywhere in, in the 20s, at the end of the 20s. But Canada's was worse than the U.S. The U.S. had I don't know how many umpteen hundred banks fail. Um, Canada had zero. Now Canada was a smaller country for sure, different economic. uh,
0: How'd they fare worse then?
1: Well, the depression, like the economic drop in activity, and this is again influenced by global factors. And the banks didn't fail. The banks didn't fail. That's the key point. So that's interesting. U.S. had I I should know the number, but U.S. had I think it was hundreds. I, I. I hope I'm not misquoting. Let's just say it's a lot of banks fail. Everybody knows the Great Depression. It was horrible for banks, bank runs, so on and so forth. And the Fed existed then, by the way. So the U.S. had a central bank. It was about Canada 10. had no central bank. It had a very decentralized system, and it did suffer from global, you know, problems. But no banks failed, and no one lost confidence in their bank. So these are these are lessons that we can learn from that like the market actually can deliver it if you let it.
0: And money and, in the market may be more separated than people perceive in their minds, right?
1: More separated, or what do you mean by say money in the market may be more?
0: Separated? Like they operate separate of each other. Like you, oh yeah yeah no no yeah. I, I got I got what you mean yeah
1: now. yeah. Um, Whereas or, I, would, I would
0: I would I would I would argue that most people assume that they're very intertwined. Exactly, in today's yeah. world.
1: And there are plenty of examples. And so Selgin uses this example as well with uh, with private uh, note issuance, which i I agree with, is like there was never a story again in the in the in the Renaissance that like some gold broker just ran off with the gold and no one got it. If anything, it was regulated one hundred percent reserve facilities that showed to be the worst. Also, there was never a time where there was one hundred percent reserved private money. It was usually like 30% would be the max from like the 1500s, 1600s. And then down into uh, late 1700s, 1800s, Industrial Revolution, Scotland, specie reserves of notes outstanding got to like 1% or 2%. And it worked. Meaning there's 1% or 2% of gold outstanding of the notes. And it worked fine. There were no runs on the banks. There was no problems. There was one bank, I think it was called the Air Bank. They, They did... Inflate, they did uh, issue more notes than they had reserves, and they wanted to grow quickly, so on and so forth. They took risks, but what happens in this system? Selgin uses this uh, this example. It's like a chain gang. Like people recognize, like, hey, because at at that time, which was natural and normal, we were under a gold. A, 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 basically a gold standard. Mm-hmm. There was money in the, the vault. It was a convertibility system. You could convert the note for gold if you wanted. If you wanted, you didn't have to. Most people didn't feel the need to. But if you wanted, and there were competing bank notes, different but like it wasn't just one dollar bill. There were, many banks had many notes with their different logos, completely competing freely in the market. But it was the same gold standard. But uh, it, it never happened that the sound banks were run upon. What happened is the unsound bank were run upon because because would be natural because you start to see hey these banks are clearing every day like they're looking at their notes and their coffers they're looking at you know the trade and some competing banks see we're seeing a lot of air bank notes maybe we should go ask them for the gold mm-hmm. and that's what they did and the bank failed like spectacular I don't I don't know so the banks many,
0: orchestrated the a banks, run on that bank the private
1: banks orchestrated a run on that bank it wasn't mm-hmm. like the people it wasn't like some morality issue of 100 so reserves
0: that's an example of the system keeping itself in check
1: exactly mm-hmm. exactly and and no central bank there no central bank running at that time mm-hmm. so these are really interesting examples of where the free market can do it better and Seljan also uses this quote which i really like he says banks weren't failing because they were run upon those banks that were run upon were run upon because they were failing. Mm-hmm. People could recognize that. It wasn't like this contagion or this, you know, everybody running around with their heads cut off or like, or, or like the uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Like people quote the movies when people are at the bank. Right. The, those things, unfortunately, they're movies and people don't actually read the history. So, again, the reason I'm quoting all this, it's been muddled throughout history that free banking works. It works. Uh, people like Selgin and White, who we can talk about, uh, we're gonna see tonight, they've argued convincingly in my mind that free banking works, the market can keep things in check, but a key component of money always is this sort of check and balance, like you have, not not check and balance, but this uh, Mm trade-off. You always have trade-offs, like there's no, the system worked well, it worked well enough when it was allowed to be tried, but yeah, you had paper, you had some banks that were fractionalizing more than they should have. Most of the time that was corrected. But actually most of the time people didn't even feel the need. They didn't feel the need to carry the coin around. So this is extremely analogous today in my mind about on-chain versus off-chain Bitcoin. Like people very likely in the future, if this history comes to pass, they're not going to feel the need to make small payments with on-chain Bitcoin. They're, yes. gonna, they're just going to use a layered system that's faster, maybe a bit more risk. Peter Todd said it great. He said it's a middle ground. You can find the tweet. He said it's a middle ground. It's not com- It's not quite an IOU, but we should also admit Lightning Network is different. It's a Lightning Network. I'm not saying it's a different coin. Obviously, we know it's not, but Lightning Network settlement is different than Bitcoin on-chain settlement, and
0: that's fine. Yeah, and, and it's, it's great. This is going to be an analogy that is anathema to a lot of Bitcoiners out there, but... Uh I don't know if you saw the the extension that came out of uh, the Chaincode Labs Lightning residency that's been blowing up recently. It's called Lightning Jewel. It's a web extension that allows you to to pay quickly, uh, pay Lightning invoices quickly within the browser without having like Alt or excuse me, Tab Alt to another wallet. Yeah, I've it.
1: heard you guys talk about it actually. I haven't, yeah, haven't used it. Well, it, it, it seems know.
0: very cool. It's obvious and it is very cool actually, uh, but it is uh, it is burdensome. Uh, to the extent that a user has to run their own node. And basically, the, the natural thought experiment that, that comes out of an extension like this that forces users to run their own node is like, well, if we're going to create a good UX to onboard billions of people, the likelihood of everybody running a node is unlikely, so we might have to do some cloud node hosting, which is very, very taboo in the Bitcoin world because right. like you should never trust a third party. But right. the uh, developer of Joule, Willow O'Byrne, shout out Will, uh, he brought brought up the fact that hey, I'm comfortable with having fifty to hundred dollars in my Venmo account at any given time. I'm not going to put every paycheck into Venmo, a trusted third party that's trusting another third party that I'm keeping my money with. But uh, Lightning Network, there's these trade offs where hey, uh, I'm comfortable with a hundred dollars in Lightning Network where I'll keep most of my savings at the protocol level in a in a pr- in a wallet that's secured by a private key, but uh, in the Lightning Network, I may be uh, maybe a, a bit riskier, where I say, "Hey, the trade-offs are such that I I am willing to uh, eat the security trade-offs for the the quick the quick transactions and uh, that are basically free." Um, so as we see this getting built out, I think these trade-offs are even going to get distracted a little more. It's like, all right, who's okay with? Uh, sacrificing security for a couple hundred bucks on the Lightning Network. Like, maybe that's the way the Lightning Network is used in the future, where you just top it off every once in a while, maybe once a month or something like that. And that is uh, an instance where, all right, the trade-off's okay.
1: Yep. And there's a ton of possibilities. It's uh, very hard to predict. Um, you know, there are these these roadmaps, these plans, these uh, this free competition, which is amazing. It's fantastic. I think it's only going to be... Uh, Uh, from a from a free market standpoint like it's the best shot anybody's had to develop this sort of thing um and, and you know if you're not into what we're saying or you think that everything should be done on chain or you disagree with the statement that we can't have everything in the world put on a blockchain then there's those experiments too and by the way i'm totally fine with that i mean it doesn't bother me like that bitcoin cash Bcash cash people go off and do those things I, I think it's good for Bitcoin good. to see yeah it's it, it good. just it, it it's uh it's a great it's it's just like it's an incredible experiment that we're seeing and obviously it's nothing new to be saying those things but um, I I I will admit I don't like I I mean I'm not a technical person anyway we definitely prefer to talk about like economic stuff with Bitcoin but this uh, lightning network specifically is going to be a very interesting experiment of Again, I say like quasi IOU's, quasi claims. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean it there are there are some trade-offs. It's clear. You should know that if you have Bitcoin in a lightning channel, it's not the same. It's just not the same as on Jane Bitcoin. It's totally fine. I think it's better than any other IOU system that's ever been developed. Middle ground is a nice way to describe it. And we're going to we're just going to see, like you said, there's going to be different different plugins and different ways to do it and um, I think that, that that's all for the, for the good. But it's very interesting. Like, I guess the point that I'd try to get across to your listeners is it's very interesting to see Bitcoin develop in a way that to me seems completely analogous to how monetary history has always unfolded. And it's with some trade offs, it's with some um, natural free market competition, normally winning, normally succeeding. And then unfortunately you see that things can get centralized, the government can take it over, the government can tell you they can give you a bit more protection, they can give you FDIC insurance, they can give you legal tender laws, they can protect you to make things exactly the way you need to be. When in reality, again, all of those things are born from fiscal problems of the government itself trying to keep take care of itself. So the, the, the great hope for me is that we can keep the government out of Bitcoin forever, and I think that it's, it's the best shot we've ever had with any money. I mean, we're moving into the, to the digital age. Why would, you, why would you not want a digital money that's a global protocol, that's defendable, that's uncensorable? I mean, it's uh, uh, what is the f- phrase that um, Trace Mayer, I think, is calling it the apex predator? Apex predator. predator. Was, that, was that his phrase? Uh, it might have been someone else. I don't know if it's Trace, but yeah, see, Apex Predator. Apex Predator is great, but uh, I'm not trying to coin anything here. But what Bitcoin does, it's like it, it is ultimate settlement media, but it's actually like the ultimate balance budget as well, because
0: <laughs> Bit, Bitcoin, it balances budget. Every if you want minutes. to
1: try to contribute in Bitcoin, great, uh, go for it. You know, try to mine, try to develop, try to do whatever you want. if if you're not able to do that if you're going to be out competed um there will be other market market participants that are going to fill that void and at the end of the day the budget is still balanced which is an amazing thing i mean there is no again private private money always succeeded in the past and it was always monopolized by a government trying to balance its budget that's the only reason governments monopolize money they were trying to balance their budgets bitcoin it is a balanced budget like you can't you can't stop it it's a honey badger all those things that is a really powerful thing like bitcoin is a balanced budget that's basically that's that's one of the ways that i look at it
0: well that's a beautiful way to put it and what i also want to dive into here is I, this is where we get a little heady in the podcast when the buzz starts kicking and it's like how incredible is it that the plebs now have control of the monetary policy, whereas everything was has been decreed for at least the last 100 years almost, or 105 years now, decreed from, in the U.S. in particular, from the central bank. Now the plebs get to, the plebs is probably not the right word, but you could be the right word. Yeah, the plebs, we get to experiment with this. It's open source technology. We get to have our input. We get to vote on it if we run nodes, uh, the the function of monetary policy has been handed over to the people with bitcoin and i think that is something that that i mean people have not grasped yet where uh you truly have a say in in the world today like you said earlier money is one half of every transaction in the world that is a very important app and before 2000 2000 January 3rd 2009 like nobody had to say in how something that affects half their life uh, worked and now the floodgates have been open and you, you can yeah. sh- and ship post about it all you want
1: you know and let's let's uh, maybe review how people are going to learn about this technology because still it's as we know it's very nascent and not mm-hmm. a, a lot of people understand the open source power but i mean if you're going to go to a mainstream media outlet i mainstream i mean like let's let's focus on us like your local news your uh or or your national news your c n n your local twelve or whatever your local channel is from local to national, your mainstream media any commentary on what you just said would just be rambling incertitude from that side i mean these people <laughs> have no idea what they're talking about. they maybe could make some bumbling phrase about the price, but they have you're not going to get any there anything there so Mainstream media obviously is out and, and and clueless. Like if you want to learn about it, you just can't. You have to, you have to, you have to use other
0: sources. Sign up for
1: Marty's Bent. There you go. And the the business news is interesting because business news, like I watch business news. I, I like Bloomberg. Um, I used to watch CNBC more, uh, but these people they understand profit and loss. They understand supply and demand. Sometimes they stop there and they just sort of comment again back to price movements. Uh, Even there, I mean, after all these years, like if you've noticed, if you've watched the last Bitcoin boom and bust, right, from 2013 to 2014, it is identical but louder, than four years ago. Mm-hmm. Identical. Identical. <laughs> people were loving the same people. Yeah. They were loving this thing sort of failing, the price was falling. Because all they understand is like price and volatility. They don't understand anything about open node source. Node governance or, or, or yeah, I mean how how to run a node, how I mean they don't understand anything, how a network would be upgraded. They don't understand anything there. So surprisingly, even with business news where you would expect a bit more nuanced, educated opinion. It's like the same vomit. I mean, they're literally vomiting on screen. Like they're reading a right. the teleprompter.
0: Well, my f- my favorite vomit is when they say Hoddle's hold on to dear life. It's like, if you're going to say that, yeah. you, you have no idea. of No like, understanding of what it actually, yes. where it was
1: born and how, what it. What
0: and it, what the ethos behind that being born. Exactly. Means. exactly. It's not hold on for dear life. It's like, hey, I'm not a traitor. That's exactly. what Hoddle means.
1: Yeah. And it, it wasn't born at all from hold on for dear life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, that, that wasn't like, like the genesis of the phrase, but the, the, the way, they're just Philistines, these people. They're Philistines. They, <laughs> they don't have any, any culture towards, towards, towards what is happening there. They, they, they just, they can regurgitate a few things about volatility and price I mean, just the phrases like it's so easy to read between the lines of someone who doesn't understand anything about that technology.
0: And the latest one has been the mining death spiral. Uh, People don't get the difficulty adjustment. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: it's so funny to see it makes its way onto the teleprompter. Uh, A a journalist, you know, a news anchor has no idea what mining or hash rate in Bitcoin even means at all. tries to tries to intelligently ask a guest who knows more. Just vomiting. They're vomiting whatever the teleprompter says. they, They they cannot put two sentences together regarding this, this, uh, this concept. It's, it's absolutely incredible. So point being mainstream media, no business media, maybe one out of a hundred.
0: We, we had Joe Wisenthal on, I think he's a pretty good skeptic. I, he, he,
1: uh, he would be in my one or two out of a hundred that, that knows, uh, knows what he's talking about. And I like that he's a skeptic and, mm-hmm. and, you know, Matt Miller is from Bloomberg. He likes it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, No no doubt there are, there are like, let's give credit where credit is due, but there are a lot of other people from his network who
0: the at crypto publications terrible
1: are incredibly cynical. And again, they cannot put two sentences together regarding a technological or economic benefit of Bitcoin. They're just... They're just regurgitating something that's usually about price and volatility. There's well, just nothing there.
0: What do you say? What do you think that says about the long-term potential of mass adoption? You think that's a hurdle we have to overcome? Do you think Bitcoin is sort of uh, it doesn't care about whether or not you understand what it is, or do you think there is sort of a an intellectual? Uh, hurdle that we need to get a lot of people over before Bitcoin becomes successful. Both, all three, what mm-hmm. you
1: said. Yeah, I mean yeah. hurdle. Uh, that th- definitely, like I think, as Murad says, like I like his view. Like long term, he's obviously very long term bullish. Short term, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit bearish. Mm-hmm. And um, there are, you know, there these are markets. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be euphoria. There's going to be things that are outside of the trend, and that. People should be prepared for that. If I would put my investment hat on, which um, I usually only do for myself or like, you know, a little bit with my consulting work, but that's mostly st- still strictly calculations. I try to not give it investment advice. In fact, I hate saying this is not investment advice. <laughs> I mean, that's the worst, cheesiest thing. Because in Bitcoin, again, Bitcoin is a system where caveat emptor is like key. That is king. Like you, it, it absolutely, you can't complain to anyone if something goes wrong in bitcoin and when things go right it's just caveat emptory like you can't there's no there's no third party you can yeah, blame or exactly it's praise
0: all personal responsibility like exactly this is a personal decision like
1: but if i uh if i had to put my investment hat on one thing i would generally say even without bitcoin at all like if we would just had like two assets like fiat cash and we had gold i would say let cash be like your courage. Like if you're going to um, try to make an outsized bet or take advantage of some market movement, the only way you're going to be able to do that is with cash. This is, you know, as Rothbard said, like if, if, if there was no uncertainty in the economy, there would be no reason for cash. Flip that on its head and say, use cash with courage, like hold cash. Um, the, the only way you'll be able to take advantage of down, down, downswings in the market, drawdowns in the market, is if you have cash. Mm-hmm. I have, so, so, so let's just say a less volatile, less adopting, less emerging market than Bitcoin. I think cash as bullion, like gold, or cash as fiat. Obviously, one of those is tax, one of those is not, so you have to think about all those things. But having like cash in your portfolio will give you courage. And that's like just a very small point from an investment standpoint. But with Bitcoin, a lot of people don't see this, like you said, this adoption is gonna take time, uh, or at least I think I think it's gonna take time. There are so many people that don't look at Bitcoin from that lens of having mm-hmm. courage. Like every every Bitcoin that I buy, every little piece of a Bitcoin that I buy, it gives me courage. I have more courage. Like, let cash give you courage. Yes, it would have been great to have a bit more courage with fiat than Bitcoin in December of 2017. <laughs> than just than december of 2018 but that that, that's those are just swings and and so on and so forth like at the end of the day the way that i look at bitcoin is with courage like if i if i were holding bullion if i were holding cash if i were holding bitcoin the way that bitcoin is and its life cycle of being adopted it's clear it's a unique opportunity i think uh doesn't pierre say it's like a once in a humanity opportunity not just once in a lifetime it's once, once in a a humanity. humanity yeah opportunity like this is digital we're moving as fernando says as well like this is money for the digital age so cash should give you courage let like any any philistine on television that's just trying to dis- discourage you from holding cash is doing it, doing you a disservice if if you don't have it if you don't have courage buying bitcoin then don't buy bitcoin don't do it don't run a node don't try, you know, the Lightning Network. Just hold dollars and, and, and go on. And there'll be plenty of people in the world that will do this. But obviously, the trend over time, the technological adoption, so on and so forth, to me and to, to you and to plenty of people that are in Bitcoin, cash is like, cash gives me courage for mm-hmm. the future. And it doesn't matter about like the next month, year, two years, it's more about long-term, down the line. Think about your family. Think about your friends. Um, so, cat, I would say well, cash is for the uncertainty in the economy, but let cash give you courage instead of just trying to think about the next, I don't know, S&P play or something else. Just let cash give you courage. And
0: Well, this is a good segue into what we want to get into, which is the post-Soviet Eastern Europe. Uh, in a book... I'm not sure if you've read this, but a book that is gospel to a lot of Bitcoiners, especially the hyper-cypherpunks, is The Sovereign Individual. And they basically called Bit- They predicted Bitcoin on page 25, and the preface to their prediction was the uh, the mid-90s currency crises that happened in Russia and Latin America. Uh, and it basically said, in the future... And like you were saying, like cash gives you courage, cash gives you courage. I want to I'm gonna be a little provocative and take it a little further. Like Bitcoin gives you certainty with... With, with a private key, like you are certain that you have a claim to that Bitcoin, whether or not that Bitcoin is worth as many U S dollars as when you bought it is a, is another question, but you have certainty that you have access to that UTXO on the ledger with your private key. Um, and that is something that the sovereign individual and I, this is what I want to talk about. Like what happened with Soviet Russia, we don't have to touch about in Latin America, but like in the mid nineties and basically the, the, uh, the dissemination or not the dissemination, the disintegration of dissolution, yeah. dissolution of, uh, the Soviet union because of a currency crisis. Uh, Bitcoin is sort of a, a, a direct answer to that type of problem. So you're somebody who lives in Latvia, uh, uh sort of, you probably moved there a decade after these currency crises had proliferated yep. pretty, pretty terribly. What's it like? What, do you notice from the psyche of the people living there? Do they talk about money a lot? Is it something that's on the top of their priority list as uh, something that should be secured as a re, I don't wanna say, uh, they've already rebuilt their societies, but as they arbiter their societies into the future, is there something that's uh, very high on their priority list is money being, being secure and sound?
1: Yeah, I mean, lots to say there. Again, with trying to not do too many tangents. Uh, My friend, uh, Jovanis, uh, he's in Lithuania. He runs the Lithuanian free market Institute. It's a very interesting, uh, organization. They started up like right after the Soviet union. Mm -hmm. He says the one thing that any socialist left leaning, uh, social Democrat, I don't want to even make it sound like I'm against one or the other. That's, that's, uh, leans towards socialism. But like the one thing that any communist socialist is sort of inoculized, uh, against in the Baltics is this deep red communism. Which usually just results in death and destruction, <laughs> and uh, that's a good thing for that part of the world right now, but it's a bad thing for obviously uh, parts of the Western world, who have completely forgotten, you know, how they got to where they were. Um, it's a whole it's a whole another discussion, probably, when you talk about the uh, benefits of of capitalism versus you know the problems that communism uh, causes. But yeah, I would invite any listener who. Is in Europe on a trip. Come to Eastern Europe. I'll buy you a beer. We can come to look at, you know, the infrastructure of Latvian countryside. Uh, it feels like of, there's,
0: like, a lot of Lutheran. State uh, of the roads. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, lot. of there's a Lutheran big, influence. There's a
1: big German. Uh, Riga was founded by Germans okay. uh, in the uh, 13th century, uh, beginning, basically, the end of the 12th century. Um, it has... Uh, Basically, that part of the world has been dominated either by Germany or Russia or Sweden the entire time. So, they're they're people that sort of know how to suffer. They've lived under oppressive regimes their entire existence, really. And
0: Why is that? Is that trade routes? Are they in the middle of trade routes or something? uh,
1: Yeah, trade routes. uh, It's beautiful northern Europe on the Baltic Sea. It's really nice. It's land that was coveted. And they just, I don't know, I guess they... They had more tribal people. they were more dispersed uh, mm-hmm. than centralized empires. I don't want to make any don't think i'm insinuating anything about how centralized or decentralized networks work, but I mean you know it's it's a complicated subject, but I do think that if you were able to show say a Western American who was a uh, like liberal is a word that's funny like living in Europe for something liberal means like libertarian. it means like classically liberal. it means like you're more mm-hmm. open to change um liberal in the u.s is like they would describe that as a social democrat socialist tense yeah so social social democrat is a good word any social democrat that sort of believes in their system i mean just come to the utopia of them all which was former soviet union and see the state of their infrastructure see how much they have been you know behind you for 50 years and now they're recovering now they're doing well now they're doing better um so so that's just like a small invitation. Definitely, please come. Uh, I'll buy you a beer and we can, we can talk about it. Uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no silver bullet to any of this, but the lesson is very clear to me and I think to most Eastern Europeans, especially, you know, migrant families that have gone to the U.S., to the U.K. or Australia, and there are many. Uh, that have basically you know, sent been sending letters back home during the Soviet Union, seeing updates about how tough life has been. And it continues again and again. I mean, we have it in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Zimbabwe now has more inflation. Inflation is an animal that just, it will rear its ugly head at any time. It's impossible to predict. It's impossible to predict. No one knows when uh, this whole study about the monetary base we've done, which I don't want to maybe get back in on that tangent, but like, there's been a lot of monetary base inflation in the world in the last 10 years, but we haven't seen like crazy inflation. Well,
0: let's jump into that. Well, we haven't seen crazy inflation in terms of prices. price inflation for the CPI basket that the Fed would have you believe is the most important metric from which to sure. measure inflation. But I would say like, look at asset prices, so S&P, whether it be equities, uh, real estate, college tuition. Yeah. Uh, car prices, or actually not car prices in particular, but I will say healthcare, college tuition, housing—three cornerstones of society here in America—I would argue—have um, hyperinflated over the last ten years. Uh,
1: yeah, and I think over the long term, that's always true. Like you can't uh, maybe predict it over the long term, but or of the short term, but you can see it over the long term. Absolutely true. Like it's it's higher than other prices in general year on year. John Williams, nice, uh, solid, old-school economist. He makes this point a lot in his newsletters. Like, the way that they've defined inflation has been changing since the so, 80s. Yeah. Since the 80s. And so the hedonics, the Basically, the variables that they put into the index, they've changed. You know, this is a common thing. I think mean, most Austrians or libertarians or classical liberals know. You know, like, if it used to be steak, now it's beef. And they, you know, they just... They it's sort rough of, rice now. It's not even beef. Right, right. It, that, obviously, that's... Uh, that's the trend is that they, they keep diluting the index. But all these things are still, again, I, I sort of go back to what I said. If you were a gold bug in 1979, you got to be careful. I'm, I'm very careful to predict like there is a point. There will come a point. There is this time. I do not know.
0: Let's talk about recent history, though. Let's talk about central banks buying uh, national tre- or treasury bonds and okay. equities. So Japan in okay. particular. How long can Japan go?
1: Well, it's go been f- since 1990.
0: Right, but but it is coming to a head. Is it? Yeah, they they're trying to unwind their bond buying program.
1: I mean, it they, they could say they're trying to unwind, mm-hmm. but obviously the moment that
0: well, all right, for you freaks, uh, we're getting into like a very like we know what we're talking about right now. For you freaks that are trying to understand what we're jumping into, so a uh, big trend is has been recently. Japan started the trend. Uh, Japan has terrible demographics and was a very stagnant economy, uh, a very uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Stagnant. Not stagnant, but it's been automated. It's been automated by technology in particular, which has driven down wages and and really uh, fucked with Japan's economy. And in Japan, the Japanese – or the Bank of Japan has – uh, Respond to that by printing money, and they were the first to start a QE program in the '90s, and yep. it has persisted for 25, almost 30 years now, which is yeah. crazy to think. But now they're venturing into buying Japanese government bonds uh, and equities. They own like what is it, 40% of the ETF? Well, I think that's the key point: is that equities.
1: Right? And uh, this was this was my point: is that even though. You have to sort of watch what they do, not what they say. And again, short term, I, it's impossible to predict. Inflation in general is impossible. And I mean price inflation. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to predict when a, an economy would go into hyperinflation. So if anyone tells you that they know, they don't. Yeah. There are a myriad of factors. It could be social unrest. It could be a, a political crisis. You know, Brexit could have caused oh, hyperinflation. You never know. Turkey is the perfect example. They didn't yes. print
0: any money, but they had a hyperinflationary. Yeah.
1: They were printing, but that yeah, it wasn't like nothing like Zimbabwe. Cra- or it wasn't Zimbabwe numbers of monetary base inflation. Yeah. Yes, but uh I would say to that again to be cautious. Like there is the only limit of what central banks can do to quote. You know, keep the system in check is how many assets there are in the world. <laughs> Japan. <laughs> could buy everything. Fuck, man. They could buy the S&P, they can buy, you know, they're already buying, you know, Nasdaq as you said, they're buying like a lot of these ETFs and things, but like Swiss Bank owns Fang stocks. Mm. There are there is no limit. So the Fed in that sense is actually mild. The yeah. only thing that the Fed owns that's not conventional is mortgage-backed yes, securities which they did after the 2008 crisis. They mostly just own treasuries, US Treasury, which is typical. And they own mortgage-backed securities but there is no limit to what a central bank can do there's no limit to that monopoly power the key really at the end of the day all i can say is that the key is that a sound money a stable money doesn't have that outsized influence which is licensed or protected from the government and thus is bitcoin you know so i think that gives me like great hope and i have uh i have great as i said great courage in holding Bitcoin, which I think you, me, your listeners, a lot of people, we are definitely on a tail end of society at this point, because most people don't have that courage, mm-hmm. think why is it needed, it's a Ponzi scheme, it's a scam, It's we have Amex, we have Visa, what's the point of it all? This is going to take, this could take decades, I mean, this could take... Oh, this I've could conceded
0: take, that this could, this could happen well, like, hyper-Bitcoinization, quote-unquote, I don't think that will happen, like, very quickly if at all but i've very heavily conceded that, that could happen past my lifetime yeah at some point past my lifetime yeah. um but staying in this vein of conversation uh what the hell
1: What were we just talking regarding about regarding the ban- central banking and their asset purchases
0: <laughs> yes but oh hyperinflation and um i just had it what was it uh bitcoin
1: Is there an end to it? Is there gonna be how they're gonna exit? Maybe how would they exit?
0: Or how well how do you think they'd exit? Um no. Ah shit. I had a very good follow up question to that. Um, um yes, yeah, so train of thought I was getting you're talking about Japan. Uh and would you agree that their money printing has enabled them to buy these type of assets?
1: I mean that's the definition of it. Yeah. Like when they so when they on the balance sheet, when they print money, it's actually their liability to society. It's a liability on their balance sheet, but they match it with an asset that they bought that printed money for. Mm-hmm. So typically it's government bonds. That's the typical thing. And that's historic. I mean, that's that goes back to governments always monopolizing money. It, it matches their sort of credit. Um, but there is no limit to the assets they can buy. So Japan has sort of paved the way there, buying stocks, and Switzerland has followed suit. And there are others. I mean, Zimbabwe just bought everything in their country, so to speak, and
0: then it was gone. So another way uh, of saying that is there's no limit to the amount of money they get There is
1: no limit to the monetary inflation that is an increase in the stock of the monetary base, which we were talking about at the beginning. There's no limit to that. They have full uh, monopoly. But I would quickly, quickly counter. Again, I am not trying to sound like a doom and gloomer or sound that that's even a system that can't work. It does work to an extent.
0: Um, It it works, but it also... All right, so yeah, this is the segue sure. that sure. I forgot for like five minutes, and finally remember the segues into the ethics of money production. Great uh, book, Guido, Jurgman Holzman wrote the ethics of money production in two thousand seven, the year before Bitcoin came out. And uh, page, I know it vividly. from pages seventy to seventy two. Wow. I believe for you, man. there's like four paragraphs in which he describes uh, the opportunity costs that arise when you print money from yeah. a central authority. Uh, they basically enable investments uh, in like I mean I think the VC boom here in America right. is a perfect example of it. They enable investments of of uh, sort of wasteful endeavors. where things
1: th- seem feasible, which they normally exactly would not and you have invest-
0: and he investable opportunities. On these three pages, he he incites a biblical story of uh, the the builders and the time of jesus who had easy access to money would try to build temples but they'd only get like a tenth of the way and you'd have 30 temples built like 20 percent um which is sort of the same system that we find ourselves in today where the the easy printing of money has enabled uh unwise investments whereas if we were on a more sound money uh the the investments that would be make would be made would be made with more uh critical thought and and there's a bigger opportunity costs, which I would believe Holzman would argue drives uh, smarter decisions.
1: Yeah, so I I would, my initial answer might be not what you would expect, but I would quickly counter and defend systems that were free, again, Mm -hmm. uh, to using fiduciary media, which means bank-created money, IOUs, um, to facilitate a better functioning society than one that did not have those things. One that just function on a purely narrow banking, hundred percent reserve gold standard system. Adam mm-hmm. Smith wrote about this. Many people wrote about that from Adam Smith to Selgin, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's important to keep in mind. And this is where I think Fernando is, is with me as well. I think it, he, he, uh, he, he studied under uh, Hernando, de so- or uh, uh, Jesus de Huerta de Soto and, um, who is a big 100% reserver, uh, big Rothbard. And these guys are like, again, I'm not an economist. I'm not trying to sound like I can... What is, a t- co- what is What does it them.
0: take to be an economist, though? A That's question. a good question.
1: That's a good question, but I'm definitely not one. Uh, all I can tell you is that, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not one. But, but uh, the, 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 again, it comes back to that phrase, like you said, there comes a point. Here's, here's, here's what an economist is. Economist should be someone who... Mises said this. Hayek said this. Who explains to you clearly the situation and then stops? It's purely descriptive, and not prescriptive. Prescriptive. Yes. This is very, very important. I mean, this is again like, how many economists have you seen on TV who give this sort of, you know, highfalutin? They know the solution oh. to all your problems. The
0: UBS's head economist went on CNBC uh, the other. Did you see that?
1: And and I didn't see that one, but. And then when they get a bit edgy, when they get a bit edgy themselves, and we could name names, we could not name names, but my question to you is, how many of these people were locked in the janitor's closet when they were younger? I mean, these people, <laughs> these people have no skin in the game, to quote Taleb. They have no skin in the game. So an economist, if you want to take an economist's word at, at the correct level, the correct value, it should only be as a descriptive, explanatory reason. Mm-hmm. The moment that he prescribes, the moment he says, I know better than you, I think he probably was thrown in the janitor's closet. I really do, because these people are taking an asymmetric view on their own productive capacity in society. I'm much rather going to listen to an entrepreneur, to someone who has skin in the game, someone who you know a CEO, a miner, someone who someone who is doing work, regardless of the field, whatever you're talking about, than an economist. And that's just, that's like it's so. I know it sounds trivial or whatever. and It's not, though. I'm,
0: That's the plight of our modern age is the hubris of some economists who think they can micromanage a global economy. That's yeah. why I think we're in the situation that we are because we have a, an elite class of academics that think they know how to pull the levers in such a way that can make the world perfect.
1: Yeah, and 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 quickly, again, I want to try to cover the bases. Like, you may think that I'm not with the Austrians or if I'm making some critiques of some of these guys that are 100% reservers. I'm very sympathetic to a lot of their views as well, but you know, there are definitely some, some points of disagreement there, but mostly academic. And I want to try to close the bow on, on this, on this hundred percent reserve stuff just quickly. But, uh, you know, like we had Bob Murphy on our show. We had George Selgin on our show. Mm-hmm. They, they did a Soho forum, which we're about to go to, uh, a debate, um, on fractional reserve banking. This is a very narrow academic, uh, uh, it's a, it's a very focused debate that is interesting as hell. Like, I really like it. But at the end of the day, I don't think it means much towards the way actors in the market will will act. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think they both agree on was the most important point. I tried to, like, I like Bob Murphy a lot, even though I maybe sympathize with Shel- Selgin's writings a bit more, at least regarding the history, not on some of his prescriptive stuff, because Selgin toes a line, too. I mean, he's an economist. He, he works, he, he, he prescribes things, too. But... Point being, both of those economists, they agree that the solution to their disagreement would be the free market taking action. It would not be government intervention. Mm -hmm. Murphy thinks that reserves would be higher. He actually, interestingly, doesn't say 100%, but he says it would be higher than what Selgin thinks. This is what he said on our show. And I think that's what it gets down to, is like those guys, those economists, and, and Huerta de Soto, all of these free market economists, they all agree that if you remove the monopoly from society then you're going to get to something that is more reflective of how people act Mm -hmm. and that's 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 i think where it goes there so i just wanted to sort of make that point in case your listeners thought i was like not sympathetic to these austrians i definitely am um but back to your question about uh holzman where were we there you you lost your train of thought. Now I did, but uh, with Holzman and uh, no. So
0: so let's get into the ethics of money. Like, is there an ethical line? Like we were talking about Japan printing money and pushing it into equities and ETFs. Uh, so there's signage there where they're yeah. printing the money and they get first access to that money and are in turn allowed to turn around and loan it out at a higher interest rate for nothing, basically. Uh, like, is there a line at which I don't want to say society recognize like. Where, is, like, where does the ethics of money production come in? And is there a way we can frame Bitcoin in a way that makes it obvious, like, hey, this is obviously a more ethical system?
1: I don't think there's any start, starting point. I don't think there's any ending point. Again, if you say line, if you say it comes to a point, I think you're always gonna be surprised. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is no limit to the amount of shenanigans, the amount of assets <laughs> that any central bank can purchase with their printed money. And I don't say that in, like, a flippant way or a way that's not even, like, possible. I mean, this has
0: been done. This is just fact. This is this has been done. You're being descriptive Time of this and way. time again. That's all I'm trying to do is describe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe I'm more economist than I'd like to be. I really am just trying to describe. But uh, Steve Hankey does a great uh, exhibit on inflation. I don't know if you've seen his exhibit. Great Twitter so, follower. Yeah, with uh, with with Cato. He, he's not such a fan of Bitcoin, actually. Oh, I know he's not. But, he's still- uh, but he is a fan of sound money at least in his view and he makes the point and he also follow like he 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 calculates inflation based on purchasing power parity of all of these these countries and you, if you actually read some of the work that he's done and 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 you you digest what he's saying it really hits home to me at least is like this is the The challenge of any individual actor working in a massive, alongside a massive monopoly is like, you never know when it might go wrong. You just Mm -hmm. never know. It could be tomorrow. It could be five years from now. Again, imagine if you were a gold bug in 1979, gold hit one year later, gold hit 800 for about five seconds, and then it never recovered until the year 2000. I don't think that at all is analogous to Bitcoin as far as price action, but. They can go on a lot longer than you think that they can, and their only limit is assets in the world. They can buy every single asset in the world, technically.
0: I'd say there's two limits. That, that limit of how much they could buy and then uh the human capacity to be uh duped for so long. I I think it's more of a social thing than uh than a mathematic or like a like you said, you shouldn't draw lines or like point to like, hey, this is And it's going to be like a psychological thing where there's sort of like an avalanche effect where snow slowly falls for three or four years. And then there's one point where it's like, all right, everybody just collectively loses confidence and you have an avalanche. And And it's unpredictable. I mean, YMR
1: Republic, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, all different cases, all different post-Soviet, basically every post-Soviet republic. You know, massive suffering, massive suicides, massive social unrest. It's 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 completely unpredictable. It's not moral in any sense of the word, and you just have to you have to well, you have to take out you have to have take to responsibility and be careful.
0: We have to get going soon. I completely agree. And that train of thought is like leads me to ask this question like, do we truly live in a capitalist society in America today? I know you don't live here right now, but like in America, is America truly capitalist or do you, do you think it's a a socialism of the rich to a certain extent?
1: I mean, I I don't look at myself as someone to make those judgments. Um, I think, you know, as is everything, there's a gradient. Like some people are very happy to pay taxes in the US. Some people aren't happy to pay taxes. Some people are very happy to evade taxes in uh, Russia some people are happy to pay, you know, Putin his little, uh, his his his, uh, his Peter's pence or whatever the <laughs> <laughs> word is to get Putin. But I mean, uh, alms, pay yeah, alms, his, to alms Putin. his alms, his their little dues. I mean, it's all individual. The the market is a collection of unlimited demands, desires, wants, and needs, and a, a limited supply. People are going to try to take advantage of it. Um. Uh. I, you know the the main The main key I've said it, I think again and again, but it's for me it's it's where the buck stops is that when you have uh, a monopoly granted from government, you should usually be most cautious in how you you act around that monopoly, and Bitcoin gives us the best chance we've ever had to like be an escape hatch to give you courage to protect your family, so on and so forth. Uh, we're about to go see. Larry White, which we've talked about a a little bit during the show. I don't know if you want to go into his new hip project.
0: Well, that's what, so before we go into it, so I was listening to your interview with Larry White earlier today, rehashing it. I listened to it twice today because I agree with a lot of you said, and I was actually disappointed. Yeah. After listening to it, to find out that he's uh, latched his reputation on the Initiative Q. So for you freaks that don't know, Initiative Q is a quasi altcoin. I don't even know if you can call an altcoin because I don't think you can mine it right now.
1: I think they've marketed themselves as not a cryptocurrency. Yeah,
0: they're they're marketing themselves as sort of this global currency where if enough people sign up, there will be enough liquidity. Uh, it, it, they're actually make, like creating FOMO, where they're saying, "Hey, if you get in early enough, yeah. enough people join." Like it will be worth a lot of money in the future, which, uh, and to, to highlight something in your interview with, uh, Dr. Lawrence White in particular that he said is like, once you have a corporation, uh, doing signage, like that is not what you want. And it seems like he has completely (laughs) sold his soul to Initiative initiative Q in particular, which does exactly what he was telling people not to do yeah. when you had him on your podcast.
1: Yeah, so just a couple points here. I mean, I know we're running long, but um, Larry, so, so I don't know Larry personally. I mean, we've interviewed him. We've interviewed uh, his student, Dr. Seljan, who you've, you know, if you've been making it this far in the show, obviously I have a tremendous amount of respect. Uh, I, I like reading what both of them have written, massive volumes on just great, Free banking, free banking, uh, freedom of, of choice in, in, in markets and economy and, and everything. They're very, very open to freedom and the, you know, opposing that monopoly that we've been talking about. Uh, Larry, if, like if I was going to speculate and, you know, I guess I just had, should comment on this since I've been quoting them as people that I, I look look up to. Like he's definitely an OG in the space. Like his, mm-hmm. uh, his. I think his Twitter feed is like studying private currencies before they were cool. I mean, you know, the most obscure thing, like if I even mentioned small change on this podcast, I mean, he would be able to tell you like just example after example after example of, of small token, even token fiduciary change that worked better in the free market than some royal minted public, a silver, 100% content quality silver coin, he'd be able to tell you that he actually a private token fiduciary coin function better in this market, so on and so forth. I'm just trying to give you a flavor of this guy's definitely like an OG in the space, and they know what they're talking about as far as uh, historical banking and economics go. Uh, I can only assume that, it, it, so it came out after we interviewed him. I can only assume that. Um, he looks at this as an opportunity you know he's later in life of 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 taking part in something that's interesting but but the way that they have marketed and i understand he's like a consultant in the project you know whatever that means but Mm -hmm. uh he didn't like start it or he's he's not the technical person behind it they've marketed themselves as being basically imagine you got into bitcoin like eight years ago that's one thing they also say they're not a cryptocurrency and they also say you know like you need to accept one email and then send five emails to your friends. Yeah. It's very, I'm sure he has his own network effect reasons why he would think that that could be something interesting, but I have no explanation of why he would support a project like that and not maybe write more or talk more about Bitcoin or even a stable
0: coin. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, because at the end of the day, like what is, like what is the, what is accruing value out of that system? Like, especially if it's not proof of work where you literally have to expend capital to prove that you did the work to add transactions to the Bitcoin ledger. And because of that, you're rewarded with Bitcoin. With initiative Q, it's like it might not even be a blockchain. It's like, how can you bootstrap that value? It can't just be uh sort of credentials of, of people that are respected quote unquote in certain arenas
1: I, I've, I've given it next to no time to even research myself but i yeah. can say that the fact that they've marketed it as being imagine you in the early years of bitcoin and at the simultaneously same time saying we're not a cryptocurrency it's very confusing to me and um and on top of that like he certainly knows the history of e-gold and liberty uh dollars reserve Like, he he knows that history, so uh, I don't have an explanation. But we're about to go see him debate Ken Rogoff on the benefits and the merits of free cash in society.
0: Yeah, and Ken Rogoff is some status freak who wants NERP policy to go go mainstream.
1: And, I mean, all of the moral, philosophical, free market reasons why cash is good, uh, Larry will be defending tonight so i'm very interested oh. to see what he will say about that
0: oh oh, and that's one thing you freaks should know is like i could disagree with larry on initiative q but i do broadly with a broad stroke agree with his uh philosophy behind free banking and the way there should be an open competition for monies on the market um and if and again everybody in bitcoin whether it be from a crypto cryptography standpoint or an economic standpoint stands on the shoulder of giants and without guys like Larry um, or George Selgin sort of paving the way for us to even grow on these ideas we would not be here even though he might be misguided with initiative Q (laughs) I am very much thankful for the the groundwork that he's agreed that he's late agreed agreed all right we've got some commercials to uh, to record too before we go we're only 20 minutes away from the event so we're not too late but Uh, we should wrap up here. We're coming up on two hours. We ripped two hours. Um,
1: so are we done with the actual content for the show? No, not yet. Besides Do you have a final
0: note for any of the freaks out there, for anybody who's just listening to this?
1: Well, yeah, I would just, um, you know, maybe it was because the vodka was not flowing smoothly enough at the beginning for me. I, I, I still, uh, I understand that the differences in, in money supplies are a confusing thing, and the difference between what a claim is and actual Basic money is a confusing thing. And the role that credit plays in all of that is a confusing thing. I hope that uh, some of that, at least my view on that, is uh, beneficial to your listeners. And if they like what they're hearing and they haven't heard our show, definitely can listen to that. We like explore those issues. But, uh, there, yeah, there's. I wish I could give a simpler answer for some of this. Money is definitely a complicated thing. Credit is probably outstripped uh, money as far as like, it's older than money. Mm-hmm. Um, but money is a medium of exchange that, uh, exists when societies get developed enough. That's the point. Ah. They're developed enough.
0: This is something I want to talk about with you.
1: Okay, go ahead.
0: All right. So the whole debate is like, uh, money to become money as it goes through this continuum, uh, collectible store of value, medium of exchange, uh, unit of account. Uh, and I've been talking about this with Pierre Richard in particular more yep. recently, is that it is all-encompassing in Bitcoin now. It's just not perfect for each u- use case. It's perfect as a speculative asset, but you can use it as a medium of exchange, but the opportunity cost of using it as a unit of ex- or excuse me a medium of exchange right now uh, is pretty high. Yep. Um, the, so I guess the argument is, does it have to go through this continuum? Is it is it in a very strict silo where it's like, hey, it's a medium of exchange here. It's a store of value here. It's a unit of account here. Or can it be all encompassing while sort of attaining liquidity over time?
1: So my general answer is, I don't know. That's why I like to ask questions Mm -hmm. and do this show. (laughs) Uh, But so answering myself is more challenging. But no, Fernando wrote, I think, uh, store of value, then medium of exchange, then finally a unit of account. The more interesting thing is, is medium of exchange. Like that's when you know it's a money, but, uh, I like, think I could the, use- the more interesting thing on top of that, Marty, is that we we've never no one alive today has ever witnessed a money truly becoming adopted. Mm-hmm. So no one really knows. Um, a lot of people also have this thing about the credit theory of money, which is a whole other thing. Graeber. Graber, Graber mm-hmm. as well, yeah. But but I mean, that is that if you read Sidney Homer's, you know, history of interest rates, he makes this clear as well. Like credit is I use the example as well. We talked about this George Selden on our show. Like, credit is ubiquitous everywhere. Like, it, it, it happened in ancient times. It happens now. Credit is different than money. So, like, two cavemen, you know, I'll make the fire today. You make the fire tomorrow. These are credit transactions. This can happen all the way from then to now. Like, you and your uh, you and your sister. Like, I'll do the dishes today. You do the dishes tomorrow. That That's credit.
0: Could credit be... Uh, abstracted as far like could credit be abstracted to a point where it's analogous to risk like that's basically what it is at the end of the day you need risk for society to succeed
1: I think that is uh, the definition of, but it, but it, it's 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 not necessarily saying that I, I, I don't know how to close close the loop on risk because that probably brings up other finance things in my head that I don't want to get <laughs> into on the end of your show but <laughs> As far as a exchange mechanism, very simply, let's say, uh, it's absolutely true. Like, Graeber is right, and I, I agree with him there, that credit, and Sidney Homer writes this, many people write this, credit was the first thing. It's, it's clear that we needed, like, an easy way to exchange would be through credit. Sidney Homer writes, like, it needs no barter, it needs no trade, it needs no commodity, it needs no metal. Credit is ubiquitous throughout society, Um, it comes like from us, there's another good book, uh, who needs the fed. I think it is, it's John Tamney. He's a, he's an Austrian, but he's sort of like me. Like he's more on the not worrying about fractional reserve side and he writes the same things. I mean, credit, uh, like we can demonstrate this right now. Like I have one Bitcoin, I loan it to you. You have that Bitcoin, you loan it to someone else. Uh, they have that Bitcoin, they loan it to someone else. And then let's say that person loans that Bitcoin back to me. Did I just count four people there, one Bitcoin? That totally can happen. It's Mm -hmm. a normal, it it can totally happen inside. The question is, should it happen? Should individuals enact in those, you know, should they partake in those credit transactions? That's up to the market to decide. Was that a stupid choice? Was that a smart choice? Was there how much risk was involved? You need it back so on and so forth. So credit is totally ubiquitous in society. You can have a million credit transactions on the same Bitcoin, there's no problem with that, I have no issue. And again, I'm not prescribing, I'm just trying to describe. But money, when money, th- that's not money. Bottom line is that's not money. Money is something where you have a more developed society, you might not be in that place in the next few days, you may be trading in you know, South America and you may be going back to Spain. And you're going to need something different to make an exchange because a credit is just not going to cut it. Mm -hmm. So that's what money comes into. So money, Graeber is right. Money comes after credit. So uh, he is right there. But he's absolutely, I think, uh, well, I I, I would.
0: I think he's wrong in the fact where credit can create a sound. You can create a sound money. Yeah, he basically makes
1: the argument that credit is money. The credit theory of money. And I don't agree with that at all because it's clear we need money in certain times and places money takes value into the future and you can use money across societies that are more developed than, you know, like a tribe. Mm-hmm. If you're just a tribe, then you're not going to be able to use uh, some certain credit mechanisms that you could use normally in that tribe. But outside of that tribe, when you get more developed and economy comes and you have more specialization, you have more businesses and more people, you need a medium of exchange to make it all work. And that's the crux of it. You know, we asked, like, I was very, I don't know, proud or happy that we got Selgin as our first first guest because I specifically asked Huge first guest. Those probably questions. Probably your best, I, I don't want to. It probably was my best, or top, our best interview. Top because, three interviews. I mean, yeah, like we, we were asking all of the main questions that I, I still struggle with. I mean, I'm not saying like I'm an expert in all of those, but like, Medium of exchange when you're talking about money, that is the cornerstone of a money. Mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't even bother like the, the argument of whether store of value should come first, whatnot. I, I totally agree with like as Fernando writes, or as I think you are getting to I'm totally fine with the argument that store of value is first. Again, doesn't matter what I say anyway, Bitcoin core nodes are gonna do what they do and mm-hmm. that's great. And I think it's fantastic.
0: It doesn't even have to be Bitcoin core nodes, it could be Bitcoin nodes.
1: It could be Bitcoin nodes, yeah, it could be but that's mm-hmm. an interesting question too because um, you know bitcoin core nodes probably looked at bitcoin xt and classic nodes as an attack uh whereas they might not look at the bitcoin as an attack
0: yeah because it's in consensus right that's well, a great well this the, is a conversation for a whole it is but episode.
1: generally the consensus rules are the same if those are i guess the the main things but they were not with xt and classic mm-hmm. but in any event like that yeah that's a whole very fascinating topic as well we slightly touched on that with carter in our interview but like i, I think that's a, another thing to explore i don't know the answer to that if you can have like a ethereum style two main implementations i do not know the answer
0: i would argue no but i do like that there are competing implementations just in the sense that it gives you different perspectives on how to view bitcoin libitcoin like when we were in riga talking to eric Vascul was like the most like we were we, he was yeah. holding court Fuck. with like a circle of like six yeah. of us and, and I was like, just giving him shit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it makes you think. Like, they don't even have a UTXO set in Bitcoin. which yeah. blows my mind. It's yeah. like, I can't yeah. even view Bitcoin without, like, UTXOs.
1: No, he's a solid thinker, and uh, I enjoy, enjoy him very much listening to his points. But I enjoy, like, I, I, I enjoy it all in Bitcoin. I mean, it's um, no one knows for sure hyperinflation is completely unpredictable. That's another point I want to make clear to your listeners. Hyperinflation is completely unpredictable. It can happen at any time, any place. You never know. Uh, sound money is, is, is something that is proven slowly over time. And I don't know, stop me at some point, Marty.
0: <laughs> no, I think this is actually a great segue because we got we to gotta leave. We got to leave. Before we leave though, uh maddie is going to record some bitcoin commercials that i'm going to tag on to the end of this uh a lot of them being very pertinent to the subject that we we're just talking about
1: but you know i'm going to need like five takes to make it sound good for each one or we have to do this live on the show
0: do you hear yourself talk i, I don't <laughs> think you can hear yourself talk. your voice is immaculate all you need to do is just read the sentence and it will be fine i'm flattered thank you um, Thank you. all right let's do it where can we find out more about you because i don't know where other than your podcast yeah
1: uh I guess by design again, but uh, I like that again. I, I really uh, appreciate you saying that um, crypto voices.com crypto voices.com is the site and the podcast, same name uh, crypto underscore voices on Twitter. Again, not, not trying to be someone that uh, can, can pontificate on how it should be or prescribe something in Bitcoin, just trying to describe it, trying to ask questions and I'm intellectually curious about the stuff that we ask, mostly about monetary policy. Um, probably some ramblings in between, but hopefully you guys uh, at least enjoyed a little bit of the cut, oh, of the man. jib that we're we're talking about.
0: It's uh, the most underrated podcast in Bitcoin, I would say by far. <laughs> and
1: I'm fine with that description too.
0: And no, I, I, I thank you for making it. It has uh, helped me out, uh, especially when I get lost on on long drives. <laughs> That's the best.
1: <laughs> The best time <laughs> to turn on the Crypto Voices podcast.
0: seriously, I appreciate you taking some of your your time on your short visit to it's New my York pleasure, to stop man. by here. It's fantastic. Thank you for the vodka. It's been a great time. Um, we're going to record some uh, some some commercials. Peace and love, freaks. I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks, uh, Marty. We will. Right, peace. Don't forget, freaks, this episode of Tales from the Crypt was brought to you by BlockFi. BlockFi is the leading crypto to USD lender in the U.S. with services in over 45 states. They let crypto investors use their Bitcoin, Ether, or Litecoin for things like buying a house, paying off credit card debt, or even buying that Lambo you've been saving up for. Uh, Though I think Lambos are pretty cheesy. You should buy a cooler car. If it floats your boat and you want to use BlockFi to, to lever up with your Bitcoin holdings, you can go buy that Lambo. Take out a mortgage on it, or excuse me, a car loan on it. Uh, visit blockfi.com slash tails from the crypt to learn more about using your crypto without having to sell. And remember, there's a special deal for you freaks out there. Uh, any loan under $10,000, they're going to throw $25 worth of crypto your way. Above $10,000, they're going to double that to $50 of crypto your way. Blockfi.com slash tails from the crypt takes two minutes to sign up. Don't be shy. Check it out, see what's going on there. And uh, I hope you freaks enjoy these Bitcoin commercials from our boy, Matthew. Uh, Have a great week.
1: When there is no other option, there is Bitcoin. Bitcoin. The first asset that you truly own. Each Bitcoin is a share of tomorrow's financial system. Today. Bitcoin. Just in case. Bitcoin. If you don't believe me, or don't get it, I don't have time to try to convince you. Sorry. Do you trust the government not to line their pockets at your expense? Me neither. Buy Bitcoin. Bitcoins aren't for trading. They're for passing on to the next generation. Bitcoin. Dying since 2008. Bitcoin, is it the bubble or the pin? Bitcoin, and Bitcoin alone, is sovereign. Stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Fisher, 1929. One myth that's out there is that what we're doing is printing money. We're not printing money. Bernanke. 2010 is that a Swiss bank in your pocket or are you just happy to see me if Bitcoin is rat poison then banks are the rats biatch Bitcoin what's the worst that could happen Nothing is more scarce than a Bitcoin. You don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. Bitcoin is a tool for freeing humanity from oligarchs and tyrants dressed up as a get-rich-quick scheme.